Dangerous Ideas Podcast, Episode 4, A Republic, If You Can Keep It, with Lawrence Lessig. Upon leaving the Constitutional Convention, this is Benjamin Franklin's answer when a woman asked him what type of government we had. I think this alludes to the inherent difficulties in maintaining a representative democracy. It is a balancing act to make a system that can get enough buy-in from people to make it stable and to resist the natural tendencies of people running the system to manipulate it for their own personal gain. I spoke with Lawrence Lessig, a constitutional law professor from Harvard, and he had been working on this issue for about a decade now, studying the American political system and how it has strayed from its original intent to represent all American people, and now gives disproportionate focus to a select few and self-selects skills of fundraising rather than governing. But this conversation doesn't really focus on the executive branch or the president, but rather the Congress. It's not sexy and you won't see it in a breaking news segment, but I promise you, agree or disagree, you'll be better off just for thinking about it. And now we get a bit of a double feature here because Lawrence is also knowledgeable about internet policy, so I spoke with him about net neutrality. I'll be upfront about this. I tried my best to do research about net neutrality, but the issue seemed to be very complicated. I found no shortage of armchair economists speculating on how economic actors and market forces would work under the new regulations, which is all well and good, but it's still only speculation. Not to mention the underlying technology discussion. How the hell does the internet work anyways? And by what machinations can Verizon slow down the content I stream from Netflix? And no, I don't consider the Facebook posts making the rounds comprehensive enough for the average Joe to be well informed. I guess that's my roundabout way of saying that if I had to make a bet, I would bet that you, my dear listener, probably are not well informed either. And as long as we are responsible enough to admit it, we are headed in the right direction. I trust Lawrence enough to give his opinion enough weight to inform my own position on net neutrality. So let's get to it. A republic, if you can keep it. Hi, this is Jordan here with Dangerous Ideas, and I'm speaking with Larry Lessig. Larry, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a professor of law at Harvard, but I'm a citizen first, so I've been working pretty intensely for the last decade trying to get us something that feels like I'm representative democracy again. And I recently read your book, Republic Laws 2.0. It's an update of the original one that came out several years ago. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the concepts in here. You were, you're talking about corruption in our political system. And as I understand it, not corruption in the quid pro quo sense, as in bribery in a, in a back alley where a politician takes money to vote a certain way, but more in the way that in order for a candidate to even run effectively for office, he needs to become adept at fundraising. And therefore, instead of being responsible to the people at large, he's more responsible to a small group of funders. And this is what you would call the green primary, that basically candidates need to be good at raising money, and that is a filter on the people that get to run for office. Yeah, I think that's an excellent summary. The only thing I would add is just something very practical and really human, which is to just think about what it would do to any normal human being to spend 30 to 70% of your time raising money from a tiny, tiny fraction of the world. 
um, which is the life of our Congress. Um, you know, they spend their time raising money from no more than 100,000 people, and the discipline that that imposes on them to get them to be responsive to the interests of that 100,000 people is really astonishing. Now, when I wrote that book, I didn't have anything as alien or dramatic as the tax bill that is <laughs> being voted on in Congress. But I mean, that was the most grotesque example where members of the Republican Party were speaking about the fact that their donors had told them if they didn't pass that tax bill, they just should not call the donor ever again. And so there you have, you know, the clearest example, it seems to me, of um, policy that's being driven by the interest of funders, quite independent of the interest of the American people generally. And just to be clear, we're not necessarily saying money is the root cause of these problems, but rather the concentration of money, the concentration, not, let, let me rephrase that again, actually, not the concentration of money, but the concentration of funders to campaigns. Therefore, uh, politicians are only responsive to a few people rather than a, a large audience. That's exactly right. I think too many people confuse this issue when they talk about, you know, get money out of politics, which of course is kind of a crazy idea because you're always going to have money in politics so long as you have elections. Elections cost money. The question isn't the money, and you know, quite often the money is useful for getting ideas out there. You know, free speech is an important value in our tradition. The problem isn't the money, the problem is the funding, the, the way the money is raised. So, you know, the proposal that I talk about in that book, which others have talked about, including people on the right, people like Richard Painter, is, uh, you know, give everybody vouchers that they can use to help fund campaigns. And if you did that, those vouchers would be money, obviously, and money would be an important part of political campaigns, but the money would be coming from millions of people, not from 100,000 people. And that would change the dynamic of uh, how congressmen do their job because, you know, you pays the piper, calls the tune. Well, if it's the people who are paying the piper, the tune is going to be different than if it's a tiny fraction of the 1% paying the piper. Well, this is one of the things I was having trouble conceptualizing. So we want to limit campaigns to raising funds through vouchers, and I get that it would come from a public fund and it would be a small amount and that would make the candidates more responsive to the people, which is a good thing. I want to engage them more. So would this system be required for all candidates or would some be able to opt out and use regular, you know, already in place methods of fundraising? Well, under the Constitution, as it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court right now, there's no ability to force candidates to use public funding. Um, and so this would have to be a voluntary system that candidates would opt into. But, you know, if you get the numbers right, then most candidates, the vast majority, would opt into the public funding system. So in the Connecticut, um, they had public, a public funding system at the state level for state legislature and governor. And in the first year of that program, 85% of elected representatives opted into that public funding system. And that's because their campaign managers told them, look, it's going to be more sensible for us to spend our time getting votes than it will be to spend our time in cocktail parties with rich people. So let's take the public funds and go out and get votes. And I think that could be the same dynamic at the level of Congress, although you could certainly have somebody who says, I'm not taking public funds or I'm going to raise money in the old-fashioned way, namely by rich people giving me money. And, um, and that would have to compete with the... Uh, the system of um, integrity by the public funding. Well, can you explain then sort of the difference between 
what we have now, what you're proposing? Because I know now there are certain limits, like I think in the book was mentioning $5,200 per contribution, but before you were saying there's not a restriction that we can put on people constitutionally? Well, so the law right now limits the amount that you can contribute to a campaign. Though it doesn't limit the amount that you can contribute to an independent political action committee. So I can only give, right now it's $5,400, or maybe in this cycle it's going to be $5,600, but it's a, it's a small, it's a, it's a limited amount that I'm allowed to contribute directly to a campaign. And that limit is justified on a, under a theory of um, old-style corruption, you know, the view that there's kind of a quid pro quo bargain going on. And so the court had said, in a case called Buckley versus Leo, which is now 40 years old, the court said that it's okay for Congress to limit contributions to a campaign to avoid the appearance of improper influence. But an independent political action committee, you can give unlimited amounts of money to because, um, by definition, it's supposed to be operating independently of the campaign. So, so far, the court has said that independence means that there's no reason to fear quid pro quo corruption because independence means no quid pro quo relationship. But what I was saying is that the law can't tell a candidate that the candidate must take public funds and can't take private funds ah. because the candidate is free to decide how he or she will fund his or her campaign, um, at least under the First Amendment as it's been interpreted. So all the law can do is basically say, um, uh, here's an opportunity to fund your campaign without needing to raise money from private funders. Um, take it if you want, but we can't force you to take it if you don't want. And you're saying it would actually be competitive for some politicians in certain places to opt into this system as opposed to the traditional one? If it were generous enough, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because if they could secure the funding that they need without spending all their time raising money, then they would spend their time getting votes or, or doing a job or convincing people that they could be good at their job um, because that would be the thing that would be most important to them to get elected. Well, what do you say to skeptics? Like, what do you say to someone, say, Ben Shapiro, he might be saying, it's my money and I'll do what I damn well please with it. What are we to tell him he can't? Well, again, I'm not telling Ben Shapiro what he can and can't do with his money. What I'm saying is that if a guy wants to run for Congress, he too ought to be free to decide how he wants to fund his campaign. So if, 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 you know, if I ran for Congress, I wouldn't want to take private money, I'd want to take public money because I don't want people to think that I was beholden to private interest. So if Ben Shapiro came to me and said, well, I want to give you my money, I'd say, well, that's your free First Amendment right to want to give me money, but it's my First Amendment right to say, hell no, I'm not gonna take your money. Um, so the, I'm not trying to restrict anybody's freedom to give or not to give. All I'm trying to do is to give representatives freedom so that they are not dependent on private money and so not dependent on private interests and are able to think about how to act in the public interest. So what about contributions in kind? Say someone maybe owns a network and they want to give a politician favorable news coverage. That's basically what money buys, right? It's advertisements and exposure. How do we? Work, how does that factor in? Well, there's a, there's a practical and there's a constitutional limit the ability to control that kind of influence. The practical limit is, you know, it's hard to know or how to draw a line between favorable coverage and a subsidy to a campaign. So, um, you know, in April of 2016, it was estimated that Donald Trump had received $3 billion in 
free media. Now he didn't receive that money from that media from people who liked him. <laughs> he received that money from people who were just covering him. But would you say that this was a donation to him, or would you say that this was just the media doing their job or not doing their job by covering Donald Trump all the time? So there's a practical confusion about how you could regulate something like that. And there's also a constitutional limitation. You know, the press is constitutionally privileged. First Amendment, you know, has um, not been properly interpreted, in my view, about this, but the First Amendment explicitly calls out the press as something the government um, is restricted in its ability to regulate. So, you know, I think it's in the nature of the press to be able to have newspapers or television stations who say, we favor Donald Trump or we favor, um, you know, the Democrat. And the ability to restrict them, I think, is limited by the Constitution. But again, I'm not so worried, I'm not worried as much about, you know, speech that might happen to benefit somebody. I'm worried about the discipline of raising money to fund campaigns. Because in the process of raising money, you are distorted by the person you're trying to appeal to. That's just human nature. There's no way around that. And if a, if a, if a member of Congress tells you that she is not distorted by that process, then you should respond by saying, well, then you're a sociopath. Because if you are a normal human being, the process of securing favor from somebody obliges you to that person. And, and that's the dynamic we have to find a way to break. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I think that is definitely fundamental human nature. What about the point that Hillary Clinton in this most recent election smashed Donald Trump? I think it was something like two to one, 1.2 billion to around 650 million. And she outraised him. She still lost. I mean, is money actually that influential? Or, I mean, is my political science degree actually worth what I paid for? Because all predictions that Trump would have lost this election came false. So how is money as important as it used to be? Well, I don't, in my book, actually, spend much time talking about the presidency at all. And that's because I actually do think that the president's, the dynamic of money in the presidential race is very different. And it's, you know, completely plausible, and it was before Trump, to, to imagine somebody beating the bigger money person. And I think that when a presidential candidate's raising money, they're not as focused on the interests of those they're raising money from, because again, they're raising money in a relatively small amount, and, and, and there's certain interests that um, um, they're being guided by that are bigger than just the funder. So I'm not talking about the president. Regardless of what happened to the election of the president in 2016, it still is the case that members of Congress are spending an overwhelming proportion of their time raising money from a tiny slice of America. That dynamic hasn't changed. And whether they win or not because they've raised that money, they still have been disciplined in the process of raising the money. So if you're focused, as I am, on the influence of fundraising, on the candidate's ability to do their job, then whether Trump won or not, whether the person who spent the most money wins or not, it's still the case that the influence of that uh, fundraising is uh, corrupting the very process of our uh, representative democracy. Well, what is, I understand your point about people being, you know, endeared or indebted to someone that they receive money from, but what about the ongoing relationship? Say for, what I'm trying to say is if we have term limits maybe for these politicians or these offices, would that lessen the indebtedness that they have because if you only have one or two terms in you may be less dependent on them because you don't have to seek perpetual re-election 
Well, you know, I kind of think we already have term limits. Um, members of Congress, you know, to kind of decide when they're going to leap from Congress to Capitol to K Street to become lobbyists. Hmm. Um, because they can earn, you know, order of magnitude more money as a lobbyist than they make as a member of Congress. And they know the way they need to behave in order to do that is to make sure they never at least um, upset the lobbyists, um, even better if they can make the lobbyists happy. And so I think that the very idea of limiting, I, I think the very idea of like going to become a lobbyist is itself producing a kind of term limit in Congress. And indeed, right now, many people are explaining the behavior of some members of Congress voting the way they are on this tax bill as um, kind of a down payment on their lobbying career, which they expect to be taking up after the 2018 election, either because they will be thrown out or because they're not going to run because it's just become such a miserable job. So I don't oppose term limits in principle. And as long as the term limits are, you know, the terms are long enough um, so that members of Congress actually can learn the job and do the job effectively. But I wouldn't support term limits until we also had a change in the way we fund campaigns. Because without that change in the way you fund campaigns, it's the same influence that's operating on the members of Congress, whether they're there for a short time or for a long time. Well, hypothetically speaking, if you only had one term after you get elected, you really have, you're not beholden to anyone after that, right? That's right, but then, you know, we're just throwing out the baby. Right, uh, right, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, the whole point of elective democracy is to make our representatives responsive to us. And, you know, I'm saying for three and a half billion dollars a year, we can create a representative democracy that's responsive to, you know, regular Americans, and we can allow members to become professional and uh, skilled politicians. And that's a good thing. And the idea that we would give that up, um, to avoid having to spend three and a half billion dollars seems to me just a little crazy given you know what we actually do spend money on i mean you could take any number of defense systems which you know trillion dollars spent on ridiculous defense systems and fund this for the rest of time and um and i think that's what that's what we should be doing rather than you know distorting everything else to avoid paying for the cost of an independent government i agree with you but i want to play devil's advocate a little bit so you're saying the cost of having citizens publicly fund elections is minuscule compared to some other budget items that the United States has. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, take the Cato Institute, which of course is a libertarian think tank, and they add, they do an estimate every year, or they did for many years, of the amount of corporate welfare in our budget. Now, so by corporate welfare, what they mean is favors that have been built into the regulatory system that protect corporate profits or that subsidize corporate profits in a way that the free market just wouldn't. So they estimate that the corporate welfare in our budget at the time that I wrote, um, at least at the time that I wrote that book, was $100 billion. So, you know, a, B with, a billion with a B. So if it costs $3.5 billion to create a Congress that's independent of private money, um, and if that independent Congress could reduce the cost, reduce corporate welfare just by 10%, it would pay for itself two and a half times over. So, you know, it sounds like a lot of money, but when you begin to see the kind of money the American government spends, and probably spends just because members of Congress are trying to make sure that they get the money they need to get reelected, look again at the tax bill that's being considered right now, I think it's hard to believe that a publicly funded system would create a, a, a more spending the government than we have right now.
So you're making a practical argument, but I know libertarians also have a very strong ideological framework. So have you gotten support from libertarians for this proposal, explaining it this way? Or are they just fundamentally against it, you know, funding these publicly? Well, you know, I think it's a lot about how the program of public funding is structured. So my proposal is vouchers, which basically says take the first $100, uh, $50 of um, your federal taxes. And, and of course, everybody, I'm not talking about income tax alone, taking all the different taxes, but whatever taxes you have to pay, and, and you know, 99% of Americans pay tax in some form, take the first $50 of those taxes and rebate it to the voter in the form of a voucher, a democracy voucher. Now, what that does is vest power in the voter to fund the candidate that he or she wants to fund. So it's giving the voter a kind of freedom that the voter otherwise wouldn't have. And what it does, the second effect, is to make sure that everybody in the process is participating or has the opportunity to participate in the funding of elections, campaigns, so that representatives are dependent on everybody as opposed to dependent on the very few. Now, what libertarians are typically concerned about when they fear public funding of elections is, number one, they don't like the idea of my taxes being used to fund your speech. Right. Maybe I don't like your speech. But the point of my voucher program, the way I've described it, is to say it's not your taxes funding my speech. It's my taxes funding my speech. But the rebate of the money that I've already paid or that I'm obligated to pay. So it's, it's no cross-subsidy. And the second thing they're worried about is the idea of the government deciding how much everybody gets to fund their campaigns. And I get that concern. It's a little bit creepy to imagine the federal government deciding how much everybody gets to spend on their campaigns. But under the voucher system, it's not the government deciding, it's voters deciding. You know, the voters might decide to give all the money to the Republican in a certain district over the Democrat. So it's public funding, but the Republican might have 10 times the amount of money that the Democrat has. And that's because of the decision of citizens, not because of the decision of the government. So I think the two core things libertarians are typically concerned about, the cross-subsidy of speech and also government controlling the speech, actually don't exist with public funding in the form that I've described. And, and so, you know, there have been people like Richard Painter, who has a wonderful book, um, No Taxation Without Representation, which is a libertarian slash conservative argument for voucher-like uh, funding of elections. Uh, makes this point very directly that the values of the libertarian should be to enable self-regulation and this does this better than the current system which facilitates a kind of crony capitalism which uh, you know is at the core of the corruption of the American government. Well, you also mentioned a few other things in your book that will increase participation, or at least access to participation. You're talking about certain ID laws, moving uh, voting from a Tuesday to another day, of maybe an existing holiday, so that people can actually vote. You're talking about fixing the issue with gerrymandering, where they have these ridiculous-shaped districts. But this, this all sort of underlies one assumption that broader participation is good. Let me push back on that a little bit. Why are we assuming that more people participating is good? I've heard the argument floated, well, you know, I'm someone with an advanced degree, I'm politically literate, what qualifications do the general public have? Why should they be able to participate in voting, and what will that benefit me? The assumption that motivates my argument is a representative system ought to represent citizens equally. And all of these structures that we've developed 
that representation unequally should be removed. So the way we fund campaigns represents citizens unequally. 100,000 funding a campaign has wildly more power than the 139,900,000 who don't fund a campaign. The way systems are gerrymandered means minorities in safety districts have no effective representation in Congress. The winner-take-all system in the presidential election um, means that if you don't live in a swing state, you have no effective influence in the way the presidential campaign develops. The way votes get suppressed um, because of techniques like ID techniques or um, voter roll purging uh, is a way in which the even freedom to vote is allocated unequally. So the premise that I have is in a representative democracy, political rights um, ought to be equal, political egalitarianism, which is different from economic egalitarianism. You might or might not believe in economic egalitarianism. That's not my argument. My argument is political egalitarianism. Now, you're right. There are people who think egalitarianism of political rights doesn't make any sense. They don't want everybody to have equal voice. Uh, what they want is the few, whether it's technocrats or the rich or um, some other group to, to have the power and let um, or the educated to have the power and let the rest of the people sort of um, learn to defer to those people. I just reject that idea in the context of the American democracy. The American democracy um, was committed to being a representative democracy. And that commitment entails certain things about equality of citizens. And I think we ought to you know, actually try to have a system which did represent people equally for once and see what kind of government we could get out of that. Well, you, when you make one argument here, you're saying, ideally, we want a system that represents everyone equally, which is a good thing. But in the book, you also mentioned a practical note. You said, we're not going to be able to fix anything else until we fix this. So if we want to see real reform on health care, taxes, debt, climate change, if that's your issue, anything, we need to fix the political system first. And I think that's a very practical argument that people can latch on to. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And even if you fix it, it gets undone pretty quickly by the way money plays in the system. So, so you know, ultimately, you know, my argument is motivated, you know, by 20% theory and 80% practical politics. And the theory is, you know, we're equal citizens. And that was the promise of a representative democracy. The practical politics is what happens when we don't have equal representation. And what happens is the kind of grotesque perversion that we see in Washington right now. What about the concentration of power within senators? This is another concept mentioned in the book. It said a few politicians have the ability to block change and reform, and therefore the interests um, of a few can influence the entire system. How does that work? Well, it's, it, you know, the framers of our Constitution, or at least, you know, the, the original architect, um, Madison, was furious uh, with the design of the Senate because he saw that as a deep compromise with um, the fundamental principle of a representative democracy, which is that we all are represented equally. Um, he wanted a Senate where the Senate was, you know, the allocated number of senators was proportional to the population of the state. Um, he would vote again. So every state has the same number of senators. Now, you know, what's important about that is to recognize that was an exception to an otherwise fundamental rule. And the rule was equal representation I, I'm sorry, the rule was um, equality of political rights, uh, at least for those who were deemed to worthy of political rights, which were white, male, and property. But they were uh, to have a system where their 
power was to be equal, proportional to their population, and the Senate was an exception to that principle because the Senate got uh, two states, uh, two senators per state. But I think what we've seen over the last 225 years is the exception has increasingly become the rule. So that in lots of contexts, the idea of unequal representation has become the norm. So again, the way we fund campaigns, the way we gerrymander districts, the way the president is selected through winner take all of that in the, in the states, the way votes get suppressed, these are all manifestations of the principle that um, uh, citizens are not equal. And, and I think we just need to fight back against that reality and, and say, Constitution kind of locks us into an unequal Senate, um, and we should work as hard as we can to minimize the consequence of that inequality, especially by at least forcing the Senate to be more democratic, removing you know, the kind of special minority powers that, uh, that might exist in that body. But beyond the Senate, at least we ought to say that the principle of equality of citizenship ought to, ought to govern. And so, you know, accept the compromise, but don't generalize from the compromise into a principle that distorts the whole of the American government. As I was listening to what you were talking about, it just reminded me, in your book, you made a very good point. I think it was also from James Madison. He said, you know, the republic should be dependent upon the people alone. And he went on to further clarify, not the rich more than the poor, so just the people generally alone. And speaking of compromises, I think the Senate compromise, having them each have two senators regardless of population size, was similar to perhaps that of slavery, they needed to get these compromises in the Constitution to have everyone sign on board to ratify it. Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, it was a pragmatic judgment that they needed to give on these two ideas, and they're related, of course, um, but these two ideas in order to assure that the nation would be held together. You know, and I think, you know, historically it's an interesting question. Would, would we have been better off if it hadn't held together? Would we get better off, you know, and this was suggested at the convention when small states were demanding equal representation in the Senate, the suggestion of some was, well, you know, forget it, you know, go form your own union. We're going we're gonna to form a union of states that are willing to accept the principle of equality. But I think if the small states seem to have some enormous power in that process, they kind of led everyone to believe that there was no choice except to include them, or except to, you know, be able to have a system that they would join. And that's what led to, um, you know, the deep compromise with Senate. And, you know, the way Electoral College works is that compromise gets reflected or amplified in the Electoral College. That is an interesting concept to play with. Would we be better off politically if the states hadn't made that compromise and we had evolved different systems? I'm sure there would be other outside forces influencing that if we were different countries, but I think politically it's an interesting idea. Another thing that you mentioned was the privilege given to white male landowners to vote, and I think in the book it also mentioned that they gave it to these people because the Founding Fathers feared that people without land would sell their votes to people with land. Yeah, and, and because of their opportun- the opportunity to do that, um, I think the driving concern that they had was improper dependence inside of the political system. Mm-hmm. And that improper dependence is exactly what I mean by corruption. When you have a system where the um, drivers are not dependent on the right things to be dependent on, then you have a corrupting system. So, you know, if, uh, if the president were, being, uh, were dependent upon the Chinese and 
couldn't do anything without the Chinese's approval, that would be an improper dependence of the president. It's supposed to be and it, um, uh, uh, you know, independent of any influence, especially foreign influence. And what we've done with Congress, though, is we've defeated that principle pretty fundamentally because Congress is not dependent on the people alone. It's dependent on the people and its funders, and it's really dependent mainly on its funders. And so uh, that's an additional dependency which conflicts dependency on the people alone, and that conflict, I think, is you know, at the core of the inequality that the current system has manifested. And, and I also wanted to touch on the concept of money and speech and Citizens United. In the book, you argue it's not necessarily as big a problem in terms of scale as the green primary is the problem of dark money. We have people that can contribute money to super PACs, and that money is practically untraceable. And what kind of um, influence or how much influence does that have over the system? And is that maybe something we need to tackle after the primary reform you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I increasingly think there's these, these both, both of these have to be tackled together. I have more confidence or I'm more hopeful that the court, if we solve the green primary problem, would be open to solving the um, super PAC problem. Um, because I think the court has not yet considered the way in which super PACs bring about the kind of corruption I'm talking about. It's also worth mentioning the perception of corruption. I think we touched on it earlier that government institutions need to be free from even the perception of impropriety in order for people to have faith and confidence in them. Yeah, and I think most people look at this Congress um, and believe that they're behaving not in the public interest, but they're behaving to answer the interests of their funders. And that's exactly the kind of corrosive criticism which makes it so hard for institutions of government to function. I think you mentioned this in one of your TED Talks. You were talking about a study that was done. It showed the probability of a particular measure being passed or voted down. And if the moneyed interests, so to speak, supported it, the more that supported it, the higher chance that it had of going up. But that if the average citizen supporting it increased, it didn't necessarily increase the chances that that measure would be passed. Yeah, so this is the best Gillen's and Page uh, book, it's the best article, it's the best evidence, I think, the way in which this is not a representative system. Because if it were a representative system, then the views of the people, representative views of the people, would be influential in driving, explaining why Congress does what it does. But as they show, statistical fact is apparently zero. What about the concept of anonymity and funding? Is there an issue where campaigns are getting money when we don't know where it comes from? There's certainly types of dark, dark money. I'm a little impatient, though, with the efforts to reform dark money because people seem to believe or present these reform efforts as if they would solve the problem. Um, you know, but, but they're not going to solve the problem just by eliminating dark money because you know, if it's all out in the open, then still there's the influence that comes from people needing to raise these vast amounts of money. So there are some people that might find it more difficult to give if it's out of public. I get that. So maybe those dollars would disappear. But it's not going to change the economy of influence in Washington that, um, you know, uh, campaign contributions are more transparently disclosed. Because people are not following or disciplining or, or, or even reckoning their vote on, for somebody in Congress based on how they see their uh, funding uh, developing. So I, I, I don't think the transparency issue 
is the core problem, even though, of course, I support transparency like anybody else. Hmm. Well, this, this kind of loops back to something you mentioned earlier, was that Congress kind of has self-imposed term limits because then they just want to determine when they can go to Wall Street. What about the revolving door? How would this reform to the green primary help the fact that a lot of politicians and lobbyists sort of, you know, go back and forth? Well, you know, the reason it's so valuable to go from Congress to K Street is because the congressperson gets uh, paid tons more money to be a lobbyist than a congressperson. And the reason the congressperson uh, gets paid tons more money to be a lobbyist than a congressperson is that the influence and connections that the congressperson has into Congress makes it easy for the lobby firm to sell his or her services to private interests eager to influence Congress. But if you change the way Congress funded its campaign, and though thereby re- remove the dependency of members of Congress on private funding, you wouldn't change the um, uh, you know, desire of people to earn as much as they can from whom they can earn money, but you would change the value of being a lobbyist. Because the thing that lobbyists do, and, and, you know, as well as like give information about how bills will work, is that lobbyists are there, are, have become a kind of channel through which money flows into the political process. And, and so if you close that channel down by funding campaigns in a different way, they lose the influence or the power that comes from being the entity that's channeling money through so I think if we change the way we fund campaigns, lobbying wouldn't disappear. You know, lobbyists are an essential part of any complicated legislative system. But the lobbyists would have less influence because they would be doing one thing, which is providing information and making arguments, rather than two things, which includes channeling money or fundraising for somebody or making contributions. Well, what is something that the average citizen could do right now today to make a difference that if they're concerned about this issue, which they should be, how can they do something about it? Well, everybody needs to get engaged in a fight about it. Um, and there are lots of organizations driving the fight. Represent.us uh, is a great organization doing that. Um, uh, and, um, and, you know, I've started a new group called EqualCitizens.us, which is and you rally people to this recognition of the inequality of our political system and, and what we have to do to get out of it. So I think becoming engaged in that place is a, is a first step. But I think the second step is just to hold politicians accountable. Every time you have a chance to see your congressperson, it's how to be the question. How are you going to change the way campaigns are funded? How are you going to make the members of Congress um, are focused on their constituents rather than being focused on their funders? How are you going to take the Pied Piper principle and make it so that it means that they're uh, working for us, not working for somebody else? And I think if there's enough Congress people, you know, get this question again and again and again and again, they're eventually going to want to fix it and change it if they don't get that question. Mayday.us tracks these politicians. Yeah, so Mayday's yeah. organization I helped start in 2014, and they also are deeply uh, committed trying to change the way campaigns are funded. Uh, and, you know, and supporting any of these organizations would be, you know, very valuable to helping build the movement. And they have, uh, I was on their website earlier, they have an interesting map of the different states and what the status of their 
citizen-funded elections are and also some of the measures that are on the ballot and also some of the candidates that are running to reform. So that's interesting. You can follow what's happening near you and just learn more about how the struggle is going. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, net neutrality took a big hit. This is a little bit different than funding elections, but I know this is something that you're familiar with. For people that don't understand net neutrality, because I've been seeing arguments on the internet going both ways, net neutrality is good for the average person? Would it create more competition? Or does it we have to get rid of monopolies first? How does this work? Well, the idea of network neutrality is to say that the network owners can't be in the business of picking and choosing content or applications that get used on the net. Beyond security or illegal content, they're not to be in the business of, you know, making the future of the internet, they should be in the business of delivering bids at the cheapest price that they can. And it's not hard to see why that's important if you think of some of the, you know, the most important innovations in the history of the internet. You know, think about voice over IP or Skype, which first takes off when most broadband in America was actually through DSL, which means it was actually through the twisted copper wires that was running to everybody's house because everybody had telephones. So then they layered on top of the telephones broadband for telephone networks, DSL. And um, those DSL networks um, um, lived under certain regulations that required them effectively to be neutral. But if they didn't live under those regulations and somebody came along and said, wow, we can do long distance telephone calls on the internet that's sitting on top of our telephone uh, wires, um, and we don't have to pay for long distance, if the telephone companies had the freedom pick and choose the applications that ran on their network, they sure, sure would have said no way. And indeed, there were a number of sites where the FCC had to stop telephone networks from blocking voice over IP. And the same thing with video. Now most broadband is served across cable television infrastructure, cable running into the house. But if cable companies could, could basically decide which applications or which content got to flow on the network, do you think they would have allowed Netflix to be on the network or YouTube to be on the network? Would they allow this direct competitor to the business model of selling terrible channels for hundreds of dollars a month when you can, you know, get the, you know, get really great content for eight or ten dollars a month through Netflix? And it's pretty clear that you know they they certainly wouldn't have allowed it or encouraged it, or they would have found a way to auction it out of existence. And so, so that you know, kind of innovation too would be not part of what the internet is right now. And this, this is the insight to recognize that if they're in the business of picking and choosing content, they're gonna pick and choose content that is most profitable to them, but the future is not necessarily what's most profitable to the network owners. And so that's why the internet originally embraced the principle of neutrality, which was the question isn't what the network owners want. The question is what the users of the network want. And if the users like it, then let the network serve it users don't like it, then it will disappear. But the internet shouldn't be in the business of picking and choosing the winners or the losers. And, and that, I think, that core principle of um, network neutrality explains a lot of what the great growth and innovation of the internet was about. But now that the SEC has stepped away from that, you're going to increasingly see businesses that are deciding you know, how to leverage their control um, to make more money. Uh, and that's good for them, but it's bad for well, I've seen the argument floated that, well, if people aren't getting served the internet service that they want, they'll find a com- 
competing provider that does give them the level of service that they want. For example, they, some people say, well, you know, you're going to have to pay more for different packages if you just want internet for email and whatever. I don't know who just uses internet for email, but hypothetically, if that's what you're doing, then you can pay less for internet. And then maybe if you want the full featured package with email, video games, and video, and all the rest of it, then you pay a little bit more. But does this seem like a realistic thing that competition will somehow spring up because of this? There is no competition. The vast majority of Americans have one broadband provider, period. And the vast majority of the remaining Americans have two broadband providers, period. We don't have competition in the provision of broadband. So if, you know, one network owner is not providing what you want, you've got, you're stuck. There's nowhere else you're going to go. Um, now, uh, you know, competition could have been a really effective technique here. You know, way back when this fight first started, I was involved with people fighting for something called open access, which meant that ISPs could basically share the resource of the wire to offer their ISP services. So, you know, back in the day when DSL was the standard, there were literally thousands of ISPs around the country. And all of them were able to be ISPs because the bell companies, the people that you know, ran the copper wire to your house, were obligated to allow these ISPs to locate at the head end of that network so that they could serve customers on the network and they had to share the wire because that's what the law required. But that alternative to network neutrality was thrown out of the window in 2000 when the Bush administration, or 2001 when the Bush administration came to power. And since then the fight has been, okay, if we can't have competition, at least we can make sure that the owners of the network don't try to tilt the network in a way that you know just increases their own profit. And that's what the fight of network neutrality is about. Now, it's important, though, not to confuse one fact about network neutrality. Network neutrality doesn't mean that all uh, packages are priced the same and all um, service is exactly the same. You know, network neutrality is like electricity. It means, you know, Internet is like electricity. So, you know, if I use a lot of electricity, I pay more than you. You might use less than electricity. But the point is, the electricity grid does not decide whether to serve me um, electrons based on whether my television set is a Panasonic TV or a Sony TV. Uh, it just serves electrons. That's what it does. Uh, electricity comes across uh, neutral or oblivious to how it's uh, going to be used in particular. And that's the kind of network that I'm arguing for in the context of the Internet. I'm not saying that if you use um, the Internet to, to, you know, to, to get video 24-7, that you should necessarily pay the same amount as my father might if he's only using the internet to get email. Um, that doesn't make any sense. But what does make sense is that the owner of the platform, the network, shouldn't be deciding whether email gets priority over um, YouTube or whether YouTube is allowed given they want to sell HBO or they want to sell Showtime on their cable network. I read somewhere that, and this may or may not be right, uh, I read somewhere that the provider, the ISPs, wouldn't necessarily be able to slow down a company like Netflix because Netflix connects to the internet through their own servers or exchange points, but they would be able to slow it down on the consumer side, like my internet connection and Netflix would be slower. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, if, you know, now that they've rejected the idea of network neutrality, these network owners have a thousand new questions to ask about what's the mix of applications and content that they should be offering consumers to maximize their profit? 
So you're going to see all sorts of packages developing. They're going to say, okay, for this low price, you're going to get Facebook, and you'll get Instagram, and you'll get, but you won't be able to get, um, you know, this Vimeo, for example. Um, or they'll strike a deal with YouTube so that YouTube can be served across the network, but maybe not Netflix. And the point is, what they do is they realize they have enormous power because they are the last link to the consumer. And because there's no open access, there's no competition mm. against that power. And so they're going to use that power to leverage more profits to themselves and along the way, block new competitors or new innovators. Because, look, in a world where the network owner decides which content or application gets served to the consumer, what investor is going to invest in uh, an innovator who wants to challenge whatever particular mix of applications and content gets served to the consumer? So, you know, God bless Netflix, that they're now suing to defend network neutrality. Because you could easily see Netflix turning around right now and saying, oh, well, there's no network neutrality, but we're the biggest player on the block. So what we're going to do is basically buy privileged access at every one of these network owners. And what privileged access means is if you want to come in and build a competitor to Netflix, you're going to find it really difficult. And Netflix will basically buy the ability to block competition because they can buy that privilege from the uh, ISPs. Right. So the, the point is, network neutrality is about enabling the next generation innovation to occur on the network without paying the tax to the dinosaurs of the network who want to protect themselves against that kind of competition. Ah, right. So you're saying that without network neutrality, large companies like Netflix could squash the competition using using their vast resources to purchase priority. Interesting. And just as a quick contextual picture, network neutrality, we're talking about, it, well, it originally came in in the 90s, I think it was 95, 96. It was under Title One. now it's switching to Title Two. or how, how does that go again? Well, you know, this whole, this whole way of thinking about it, I think, is missing a fundamental point. The internet was born neutral. The very architecture of the network was neutral. Content, uh, the network owners had no technical capacity to pick and choose content and applications because they had no technical knowledge about what applications were flowing across the network. They just were serving bits. And what happened in the period from 1995 to the present was the technical capacity to control what's going on on the internet has grown dramatically. But now network owners could deploy technology, pick and choose which content and applications flow on their network because the technologists have developed this technology. So now they can discriminate in a way that they couldn't discriminate uh, they couldn't discriminate before. Hmm. So in the old days, there might not have been regulation like network neutrality regulation. But that's because it wasn't needed in the old days because there was no technical capacity to do the discrimination that they are engaging in right now. But as the network develops the capacity to discriminate, people started raising the concern that that capacity to discriminate would just uh, uh, create power for the network owners, but weaken the opportunity for competitors or the next generation internet providers. Um, and so that's when you've seen the push for more, uh, what, you know, more regulation of those network providers to make sure that they don't leverage their power, their very powerful, 
in many cases monopoly, sometimes duopoly power, to control the future of the Internet. And so the, te the technical way in which that regulation has occurred has shifted over time. Um, sometimes it was seen as a basic principle of equal opportunity that came from you know, the, the telecom uh, days of the Internet. But whatever the particular legal infrastructure that might have existed, the important thing is to think not just about the law, but also the technology, the interaction between the technology and the law. Interesting. That interaction uh, today has produced this really dramatic uh, danger, which now that the Republicans have given up on network neutrality, I think we're going to see manifest about more dramatic. Hmm. Lawrence, this is a fascinating discussion. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about or leave the listeners with? I think we covered it for, um, for a good hour, good, good time. Well, this is great. You're, you're a good guy. You plug two other people's books, so I'll, I'll plug yours for you. Republic Lost 2.0, you can find it on Amazon. It's pretty cheap. It's under $10, and I think everyone should have this in their library just to learn a little bit more about our political system and what ails it. And, Lawrence, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. I hope we can do it again someday. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. Bye. For net neutrality, Lawrence predicts that without open access and lack of competition, network providers can pick and choose what content the consumer gets. He argues, and I agree, that network providers should be content neutral, much like the electric company can charge you more based on usage, but not based on what you use the electricity for. It is an interesting idea that without network neutrality, large companies can stifle competition and innovation by paying the network providers for privileged access, or worse, to block competition. This whole problem arises because network providers now have the technological capacity to control what is going through the network. I will be interested to see how much of these concerns come to pass now that the perfect storm, a lack of network neutrality regulation, lack of competition due to monopolies, and an increase in the technical capacity to block specific content has occurred. If it does happen, I predict we will see the network provider monopolies eventually be taken away. For the Republic, Lawrence astutely points out that something interesting about human nature, that when someone gives you a benefit, such as money for a campaign, this instills in you an inherent, perhaps subconscious, indebtedness to that person, and a discipline in the way you behave so that you can continue to seek that benefit. This is how ancient Rome functioned, through the patronage system, where poor clients were obligated to their wealthy patrons. And as we know, the Roman Republic was not flexible enough to reform and save itself, but that's a conversation for another day. The point is, is that we have historical examples where this same human psychology and similar political system was at work and failed, perhaps as Benjamin Franklin was alluding to. Luckily, we are not doomed to repeat this mistake. We can put into place relatively cheap public funding that might make campaign fundraising more responsive to the people generally. And make no mistake, the rich will still be rich, and there will still be a class of elites with all their wealth and privileges and influence. But this will give power back to the people where enough of them have skin in the game to preserve and protect the system that has served us so well for so long. You have heard about out-of-touch politicians in their Washington, D.C. offices and the well-funded lobbyists that also have offices there, but the average citizen does not. Can you imagine the next time if Congress votes on a bill affecting big pharmaceutical companies or big oil companies, but that Congress is not dependent on their money to get reelected? We might see policy changes that lead to practical benefits, 
such as affordable prescriptions or less tax subsidies to oil companies. I will be following along to see how this works at the state and local level on Mayday.us. And I'll post updates from time to time on Twitter at DangerousIdeas1 and also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash DangerousIdeasPodcast. This was the first interview I did over the phone. I wasn't able to make it to see Lawrence in person, but I felt the subject matter was worth the compromise. And it was supposed to be published last month, but the flu did not quite agree with the usual schedule. In the next episode, I'm hoping to interview a guest on the realm of topics relating to the Me Too movement, rape culture, and sexual harassment generally. Before I forget, I'll throw in my disclaimer that any views expressed are my own and do not represent anyone or anything else. These are not embarrassed disclaimers, as one commenter assumed, but rather a way to cement the divide between my personal and professional life. Have your own comments? Head on over to DangerousIdeasPodcast.com and share them. This is Dangerous Ideas. I'm Jordan Gassemi. Be reasonable.